Welcome back to Rubrics, a St. Timothy's podcast. We are recording this on Tuesday, but if you are listening to this, um, it is Wednesday or later. It is Tuesday, March 7th today, which is the commemoration of the Feast of Perpetua and Felicity, um, two women who were martyred in Rome in the 3rd century, early 3rd century. Carthage. Carthage. Uh, Yep. Um, Under the Roman Empire. Yep. Okay. Well, we've got our facts straight there. Um, and it is also in Lent, and so we will um, commemorate them at the Mass today. We, we prayed their colleague second, um, but they are, are worth talking about um, because they, they are such a noble story of uh, faithfulness in the face of suffering, um, of you know people who were perhaps the most vulnerable, two women, one who had just given birth and one who was pregnant in prison, and then gives birth, and then they're brought to their death. Um, but we will open with, with the colic for Perpetua and Felicity, um, and then you know talk a little bit about their story. Let us pray. O God, the King of saints, who strengthen your servants, Perpetua, Felicity, and their companions, to make a good confession, and to encourage one another in the time of trial. Grant that we who cherish their blessed memory may share their pure and steadfast faith and win with them the palm of victory. Almighty and everlasting God, who hatest nothing that thou hast made and dost forgive the sins of all those who are penitent, create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of thee, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Perpetua infelicity, I, I've always thought, is um, such an interesting story because we have Perpetua's own account um, of portions of her life and visions that she had in prison, and then uh, somebody continued her account? Do we know yeah, who an, finished it? An eyewitness. It? I mean, okay. I don't know. I'm going off memory. I mean, they died in 203, mm-hmm. and... Um, one of the, it's not, I mean, there are earlier documents, but it's yeah. a very early document. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think 203, um, we were talking earlier, we have a parishioner who's turning 105 yeah. on Sunday. Sunday. So if, you know, you go back uh, technically one lifetime, now you're getting into perhaps the life of John the Evangelist. Yep. Yep. I mean, really, John really close. Gospel. Yeah, exactly. Um, so very early on, um, but she—I mean, she was educated, mm-hmm. so she could. She was literate. She could Perpetual write. Perpetual was. Perpetual yeah. was, and there were, I think, five of them. Yeah, there's companions. Companions. Sometimes but gets Perpetua crazy. and Felicity are the two names. I think Perpetua and maybe Felicity. I'm completely going off memory. I think they're even listed in the Roman canon. I think so. I think, Agnes and I Lucy think so. I think so. Someone Perpetua will correct maybe. us, but. Um, but yeah, um, Perpetua was uh, educated, noble woman, had a child. Mother was Christian, father was pagan, mm-hmm. and um, her father really wanted her to recant, to renounce mm-hmm. the faith. There was you know, rampant persecution. Felicity was uh, a slave mm-hmm. and was pregnant. And um, they, I forget how long they were imprisoned, but they were imprisoned in um, perpetual rights about the oppressive heat. Mm-hmm. And, and some uh, of the visions she has, and the one visions, of them is, uh, yeah. I think, almost fist-fighting the devil, yep. 
and defeating him, and then her prize is the gates to the kingdom of life. Yeah, and we, we often sort of think that Christians being fed to the lions in the games mm-hmm. is sort of a, a trope, but no, it actually no. happened. Yeah. And I don't know, again, I'm going off memory, I don't know if they were beheaded in the games or they, so, if they were just devoured by the lions. Yeah, but, I, I think it was or the bulls, animals, actually. Bulls. Um, but they threw them both out there, or maybe just Perpetua, and... And basically, so while they're in prison, you know, they have some really interesting writings, and um, we're told that when Felicity gives birth in prison, um, because Perpetua already had a kid, Mm -hmm. Felicity's pregnant, and she is crying out in labor pains, and one of the jailers kind of mocks her and says, if you're already crying like this, what are you going to do when, you know, you actually suffer when we we kill you? And Felicity said, uh, there will be another within me who will suffer for me, because it is on his account that I am suffering. And then when they're thrown to the wild bulls, um, Felicity kind of almost says, is said to be kind of gone into like a trance-like state, and she um, afterwards does not die from the bulls, but, you know, is, is bloodied and beaten, and her clothes are, are all tattered. And she asks, I think it's Felicity, when are they throwing us to the bulls? Felicity says it already happened, look down, and she looks at her clothes and realizes um, and because, you know, the crowd clamored for, for blood more and more, they bring them back out with swords. Yeah. Um, and it says they died by a blow. I don't know yeah. if it was, it was probably beheading, sure beheading or something. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're a tremendous example of Christian approaches to suffering and evil um, is not to always, you know, confront them head on and meet them on their own terms, but it's almost to undermine the sting that they claim or the authority that they claim. You know, they are set up in this arena where the whole point is to terrify you. You're in a crowd, they're clamoring for, you you know, your head to be cut off or they want to see you tortured and Perpetua and Felicity, you know, calmly say, you know, fine. Uh, the, the suffering means nothing to the glory that is to be yeah. revealed, maybe as Paul says, but, but this idea that I'm not going to let you have that moment of power and um, lust for greed and, and power that you know that you think brings you with the sword. I'm going to undermine it by almost trivializing it. You know, go ahead, kill me. Um, there is one greater than than I who you know will, will bring me through this trial. It's not that they weren't afraid. I imagine there had to have been some right. fear yeah. uh, in there. But two reflections that come to mind. One is. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is how sophisticated and mature their understanding of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. was this early in the church. Correct. Again, I think sometimes there's they, this thought... They did not have the New Testament, most they, likely. No, not, not, not the way that you and I do. Right. I mean, they knew the stories, but sort of the completion of the canon and right. all of that was still in development. I mean, all the books were there, but at any rate, that's a different podcast. But there, I mean, the maturity um, of, of their understanding of who Jesus Christ is... Yeah the nature of his suffering, the role of One his suffering. suffers within Yes, him. and these are very, very sophisticated theological statements that they are making. Um, and I, I think that sometimes people assume that Christianity is invented mm-hmm. the longer it goes. But you see the fullness of the faith very early on, and um, I don't mean this in any way negative, in these women who are largely excluded Correct. from... From I mean we know Perpetua had some education but but Felicity, a slave woman who's yeah, pregnant. Yeah. I mean. The other thing that comes to mind is this, which I think is it's not missing, but for Westerners, for Americans who are pretty 
averse to any kind of pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. I remember one time leading a class and talking about dying for our faith, and someone made a very honest statement. It hurt me they said it, but it was an honest statement. They said, I'm not sure I want to live for Jesus Christ, yeah. much less die for Jesus Christ. Good for you for acknowledging Exactly. That. But I think of, for instance, St. Lawrence, um, who was burned on the gridiron. Yeah. And great line, just like Perpetua and Felicity when he was being burned. So imagine a man strapped to a big grill, mm-hmm. um, like a rotisserie, and he says, can you please flip me over? I'm done on this side. Wonderful. I mean, just absolutely... Just sort of giving the sort of the spiritual middle finger right, to the whole trivializing thing. Trivializing their their authority. Because there is a peace we talk about a peace that passes all understanding. It's a calm in the midst of the chaos mm-hmm. where all the people who are around are the ones who are anxious, mm-hmm. which is why they feel compelled to to stop this movement, mm-hmm. to silence these voices because they feel threatened. But the people who are the most vulnerable are the least threatened by right. all of it. You know, someone was asking us recently about the nature of suffering in 2023. Mm -hmm. And since we don't have a real risk of being thrown into an arena. However, I think to to make the the connection, the comparison that we too are called to be that calm in the midst of chaos, to tap into that peace, our suffering looks dramatically different. Mm -hmm. But there's still still an element of suffering nonetheless. That's in the call to all Christians to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. So Perpetua and Felicity aren't just stories, but they're examples. They are um, inspirations for us that whenever hardship we have to deal with today, to to face it with the confidence and boldness that comes not from ourselves, but in the in the passion of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Bring it. Yeah. Um, you can't hurt me because um, he's already redeemed me. He's already yeah. saved me. And that calm, I mean, that begins with the first martyr, Stephen. Yep. Everyone around him, you know, anxious and, and dragging him out and stoning him. And he prays for them and, and encounters Jesus Christ and, and sees him at the right hand of the Father and is full of peace. Well, I mean, go go back and watch the, uh, watch, read the dialogue between Jesus and Pontius Pilate yeah. in John's Gospel. Who is the anxious one in that exchange? It's not Jesus. Yeah. Pilate's the one that's really freaking he doesn't out. doesn't know what to do. Exactly. Jesus is... Absolutely handing, in family systems theory, you would call that giving the anxiety back to its rightful owner. Jesus refused to take the anxiety of uh, Pontius Pilate in that moment, but gave it back to him to deal with, Mm -hmm. to deal with it himself. A couple more pieces of banter before we get into our our main topic. Did you see the uh, chrism oil consecrated in Jerusalem? I did, yes. I'm sure you did. Of course I did. We've got a picture of it. I'm going to pull it up as you kind of explain why this is noteworthy. The Patriarch of Jerusalem, the Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem, who's Greek, and the Anglican Archbishop we go. Um, of, uh, of Jerusalem in, um, in the Diocese of the Middle East, had this really extraordinary gesture of ecumenism. Of They both consecrated the oil to be used in the coronation of King Charles III. I think this shows a lot, and I'm really speaking from a place of ignorance, but I don't think this is um, too much of a stretch. I think this shows a bit of um, the religious um, sort of uh, intuition and um, his sort of foreshadowing his his connection and interest in religion for mm-hmm. King Charles. For people who don't know, King Charles's uh, father, Prince Philip, was... Um, I mean, he was baptized Orthodox, mm-hmm. 
His mother um, is buried in Jerusalem. She's buried, uh, I think, on the Mount of Olives. That's right, yeah. And um, died a nun. And um, Prince Philip had a, a real interest in orthodoxy. King Charles has a real interest in orthodoxy. King Charles has been, I think, more than once to Mount Athos, hmm. this uh, monastic kingdom um, off Greece, uh, the Holy Mountain, which is hard to go to. I think it's a real and abiding interest in faith and religion. There was once upon a time this worry that King Charles was going to be um, pluralistic in his in his approach to right. being the defender of faith and not the defender of the faith, the faith. which is the title of the monarch. But um, King Charles, in all of his addresses, all of his statements, at least from my perspective, has been unapologetic Christian, unapologetically Christian. And I think this wonderful image of the Church of England, um, of which he is the supreme governor, and the Orthodox Church, the Church of his baptism, together is mm-hmm. a. And I think the fact that they that they did it in great cooperation mm-hmm. is a beautiful, beautiful, hopeful thing. And um, of course, the Archbishop is a is a really wonderful man. I've met him on two occasions on our pilgrimages. The first time when he was the dean of the Cathedral of St. George's in Jerusalem, just could not be more hospitable, could not be more kind. And then when he um, was elected as archbishop, didn't change a bit. Accessible, hospitable, kind. Um, is he as tall as he looks in this picture? He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a big man. He's tall. <laughs> he's tall. Um, was trained um, in America, uh, went to VTS. Oh, okay. Either for his, I'm not wow. sure if he went to VTS for his master's or an advanced degree, but he's just delightful. And I'm thrilled he is um, on the, in, you know, holds the Episcopal See there, and I'm very glad to see this. He's actually been very active in all kinds of ecumenical um, things in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So Christians are such a minority in Jerusalem. I think that all of those different traditions realize we do much better to work together where we can yeah. and and stop and stop all this inviting. So I was pleased. Do we still have time to do a shameless plug for joining us in the Holy Land? Yes. The window so passed? July, I have to look it up. July, no, 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 it hasn't, hasn't passed. July 24, uh, July 2024, the dates are July 14th. Hang on. Um, it's July. Put you on the spot. Well, it's all right. This is bad TV, I know. Um, here we pilgrimage. I know I'm going. The dates don't matter. Um, That's true. I got the whole month But reserved. if you're watching or listening yeah. to this... You're welcome to join us. Um, July 18th through the 24th, 2024. There you go. Ten days. We spend um, nine nights in Jerusalem, three nights in Nazareth. I've done this. This will be my fourth trip to the Holy Land, mm-hmm. my third with Canon Iyad Kumri and uh, his sons. It, it is, you cannot have a better pilgrimage. Yeah. Um, I, this is the third St. Timothy's pilgrimage. And I already have um, one, two, two people who have signed up, three people who've signed up to go for their third time. Yeah. Because every time they go, they have a different experience. So I'd love to have you join us. But the Archbishop is someone we would meet. Yes. We meet him in his residence. It's a it's a wonderful thing. Yes. So shameless plug for that. Yeah. Well, let's jump into um, something that you've been on your mind um, 
you've been talking about recently, but kind of opens this idea of suffering and evil, the existence of evil in our world. What have you been watching on Netflix? Yeah, I, I, is it, I have been a bit obsessed with it. I am late to the... News. I was too because you were the one who informed me about yeah, it. Yeah, to the to the trial of of Alec Murdoch in South Carolina, and I was just consumed by it last yeah. week with the closing arguments and the and the verdict and the sentencing. And part of it is personal for me in that I'm from South Carolina, mm-hmm. although more of an upstate redneck than a low country aristocrat. But I know Hampton. I know Varnville. Um, I I looked up. I was telling you yesterday, I looked up, I was curious as to where the victims were buried, yeah. what church did this family go to, and it was a United Methodist Church, apparently, and I the, I, I know of the, the minister who did the funeral, yeah. so lots of connections I didn't know that, um, that I had, but I think all of us watching it have been sort of drawn in by this, what would seem to be a fictional Southern Gothic horror tale. Yeah which is not fiction at all, completely nonfiction. Um, and I think sometimes we're, we're so, we're caught off guard by how, how dark things and people can be. Yeah, the stories are wild. Wild. And listen, you and I are not in the judgment seat, but the legal system has gone its course, yeah. and, and the jury of his peers has found him guilty. Right. He has, of killing his wife and his son, um, he has admitted to uh, stealing money, and there are innumerable other circumstantial sort of things that, that make one wonder if how yeah. how big does this darkness or how deep does this darkness right. go? And um, I've just been fascinated by it because um, it just shows you what happens, or it shows you about human nature. It does. Yeah. And we were talking um, recently. The thing that the thing that really struck me. Um, well, I mean, there were a couple of things. I mean, so at St. Timothy's, we've we've had experience with two murder trials mm-hmm. in our parish. One since you've been here, since I've been here, one wasn't a parishioner, but but um, the accused started coming here after after the arrest. He was on bail and before the trial because he didn't feel comfortable in his the church he was attending, which is interesting. And um, I've told you that I went to the trial. Mm-hmm. To support, um, not as a declaration of my of my attitudes toward guilt or innocence, mm-hmm. but here is a human being, yep. person in my spiritual care who's on trial for first yeah. degree murder. So I went to the trial. Don't abandon people. Just Don't abandon people. Sin. No, no. And um, I remember, I remember the prosecutor came to me. I was in my clericals. Came to me. It was actually a very sweet thing he did. He came to me. He says, "Father, I'm going to say some pretty direct." harmful mm-hmm. things. And I just want you to know I'm doing my job. I said, I appreciate that. I so know you I. are. I said, so I said, so am I. Yeah. I said, I am here to support this person mm-hmm. in guilt or innocence. Right. Not to say that, you know, they did no wrong if they were convicted, yeah. but to say my my spiritual support is needs to be there, period. Um, and I appreciated that. But what was interesting for me is what I saw on in the trial is not what I saw on the news when I came home yeah. in terms of the reporting. And this individual was acquitted. And I think from what I witnessed, if I were on the jury, I would have 
made the same decision mm -hmm. regardless of my relationship with the person. People were not happy. They were not happy, but they didn't see the evidence yeah. and they didn't, they weren't there in the trial. Um, I mean, he killed the person. That wasn't in, in question. The question was, was it self-defense or was it premeditated? And I thought the evidence, the forensic evidence, all of that was very clear in my mind. Mm -hmm. It was an act of self-defense, but that's neither here nor there. But it was interesting to see the, the drama of humanity on display. Right. And literally now you're talking life and death. Yeah. You're talking life and death of the person who is not present because they're dead. Mm -hmm. But also this person's life is going to change right. Or as dramatic as it can as you can change a life, either spending the rest of your life in prison or depending on the state, right execution. So it matters, mm -hmm. and um, there's a crucible of 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 all that coming together was fascinating. The other one though was of a parishioner. We had two parishioners, and this is all public. Um, two men, um, one killed the other. Mm -hmm. um, and I did the burial of the one who was murdered, and I had to go visit the one in jail of the one who did the murder. And that was very, very, very hard. And that individual um, pled guilty before the trial to avoid, frankly, the death penalty yeah. and is in prison for the rest of his life. So there was no trial to go to. But it's an element of uh, the fragility of human nature and how... Every human being has the capacity for these actions. And that, yeah. that may and seem like a harsh really thing. That's really the key to, I think, when we watch these, you know, true crime are, are yeah. all big. And we like to gawk at them. Um, but, you know, the, the Christian response should be to say, there but the grace of God, you know, go on. Well, I mean, th this, this addiction to sin and its power has the potential to turn anyone into a monster. So what did Jesus say? He says, if, if you've... You know, if you've hated someone, yes, you have, in a sense, you've killed your brother. You've killed your brother. Yeah. Now, that being said, we have you to don't get the death penalty. We have to understand what Jesus brother. is yeah. saying. I would much rather, Father, you hate me in your heart <laughs> than than bodily harm me. And and of course, we understand that. But he's making the point is that the journey may not be as far as we might like to think yes. between hatred in my heart and then finally justifying it to where your life needs to end, yep. and I can come up with all the reasons why. And we were talking last night, the most uh, really powerful and theologically rich thing that I heard uh, at the sentencing was from the judge who... This um, was the Murdoch trial. The Murdoch trial, yes, yeah, sorry. The judge um, at the sentencing, giving him two life sentences, lifetime in jail, um, when Alec Murdoch said, I would never hurt my wife, I would never hurt my son, I'm paraphrasing, you should all look it up. The judge said something to the effect of, um, I have no doubt the man here would not do that. But the monster you became, yeah. meaning under the influence of all the opioids, when yes. you would take 20 or 30 or 50 or 60 pills a day, um, absolutely did. But it was that phrase, the monster you became, mm -hmm which is what happens to all of us unchecked when we begin to slip down, go down that slippery slope of rationalizations and justifications for transgressions and sins to where we go from that initial kernel of greed or hatred or envy or lust or whatever it is. And then before we know it, without even recognizing it, we're now on trial yeah. for, for killing someone yeah. or taking money or whatever the case may be. 
I really like the addiction metaphor there. And, and it worked in the Murdoch trial because he was actually addicted to opioids. Um, but this idea of sin as an addiction, I think, works really well the more you flesh it out. Because you think of, um, especially how we treat addiction today, I think people have um, been able to nuance um, views of addiction. And if you've ever experienced this in your family, you probably know what I'm talking about. But the idea that, you know, addiction ends up becoming something that you are powerless over. And so you have to be able to say, you know, my loved one is is suffering because of this. At the same time, they're hurting those around them because they chose to mm-hmm. take steps that led them to this addiction. But you look at all the different recovery programs, whether it's, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, NA, SA, you know, all the different, all the different support groups that try to get people out of these addictions. Um, do you know what step one is? In, uh, in, in all of their, you know, 12-step programs. Higher power. It's admitting you have a problem and that you are powerless, powerless. over it, or a problem, and you are powerless over it, and, and, you know, acknowledge that you need a higher power's help. But that idea that it's become a problem, it's become unmanageable in my life, and I am powerless over it. There's a lot of spiritual truth there when we map it onto sin. And I think uh, people are willing to make that jump when it comes to alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever it is that they've become addicted to, that, oh, this thing has power over me. And when we talk about sin having power over our lives, all of a sudden people want to take a couple steps back and say, well, I don't know about that. You know, the idea that we are, we are um, powerless to sin and we, you know, we are helpless and we need a Savior, that makes some people uncomfortable. But when we kind of use that metaphor of, of sin and addiction and flesh it out, that's absolutely what's happening. And, and when we talk about, you know, these atrocious evils that are committed, it's an addiction that has, you know, gone far and further and further and further to where you wake up and you realize, what am I, you know, what am I doing? And, and sometimes it takes, like for alcoholics, that rock bottom experience to wake you up. With sin, sometimes it, it takes that all of a sudden rock bottom experience. Maybe, maybe you know, on the Murdoch trial, he, he genuinely feels like, I would never do that. But he found himself at the bottom of addiction and sin and evil, and all of a sudden, you know, it came to a head, and, and now he has to deal with those consequences. But when we think about evil in the world, and, and I mean, truly, you know, the Murdoch experience is, is a great example of the depths of the depths of evil. I mean, murdering a wife and a child, and that is horrific. And when we take, you know, 50 steps back, we might be able to begin seeing what leads to that, you know, addiction to drugs, um, an attempt to escape the world, harboring hatred in your heart. That probably happened years before he actually committed those heinous acts, but it was letting those fester that leads you to that that pit of destruction and evil. Yeah, I mean, what did St. Paul said? I mean, St. Paul, talking about his daily struggle, mm-hmm. says the things I want to do, I mm-hmm. don't do, and the things I yeah. don't want to do are the things that I end up that's doing. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. And, you know, in terms of moral theology, moral theologians have, have even said that for someone deep in addiction, I need to be careful how I say this, their moral culpability is somewhat lessened yeah. because they're not in control. Correct. It doesn't mean they're not culpable, but they're no longer in control yeah, to do that. They have totally lost control. So if you're not in control, the question is, who is in mm-hmm. control? What is in control? Yeah. And, um, you know, we, you don't, 
The problem is when we talk about evil and demonic realities is that people immediately go to Hollywood and cartoons. It doesn't have to be that dramatic. I think evil and the devil operates like a bolt of lightning. Um, The devil is lazy. Uh, What's the path of least resistance? You don't have to be all that dramatic if you can just go an easier route, a more subtle route. C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, is brilliant in in illustrating that. Humorously. Humorously, but but completely insightful in how he talks about it. And the other thing to think about is if you look at the story of the Murdoch family, and I hate to put the whole family on trial, but I mean, this is on everyone's mind, yeah. or at least lots of people's minds, is how generational it is mm-hmm. and about how this wasn't a case of one person who just simply had this wrong transformation and went down this wrong path, sort of was raised in this, this entitlement, it, you know, it appears, appears to be with uh, a real lack of accountability mm-hmm. and, and consequences for actions about how one's environment one's uh, friends, how we surround ourselves, how we spend our time ends up, we we take on those characteristics Mm -hmm. and we don't even know it. Um, I forget where it is in the New Testament that bad friends will ruin good morals. It's a beautiful, um, great line. It is. Um, And so I think that as dramatic as the Alec Murdoch case is, it needs to be a, a real... A wake-up call or example as to this is simply human nature mm-hmm. and not necessarily, even though it is an extreme case, but but not necessarily an extreme case. I think the objection a lot of people, you know, always bring up when you talk about sin is, you know, in things like the Murdoch trial, is they'll absolutely jump to the whole, I'm not as bad as that, you know. I haven't murdered anyone. You know, they watch the Murdoch family and those sins, and and they kind of um, downplay the seriousness of sin in their own lives because it's never reached that level yet. Um, and I think Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you know, that we mentioned earlier, you have heard it was said, but I tell you, is a way of warning us to stop it in its tracks. Um, you've heard it was said, you know, don't kill, but I tell you, if you harbor hatred, you're guilty of murder. Um, He's not putting us on trial for hatred, but he's he's saying that the damage that it does internally and in separating us from God, that first step back leads to the second step and leads to the third. Now, what I'm not saying is, you know, if you get mad at your brother that, you know, no hope for you, you're on your way to murder. No, but but there is a seriousness that we need to approach sin. And, when, and you know, one of the things I love about any self-examination um, any good self-examination, is it's going to encourage you to think deeply on your sins um, and and kind of encourage you to lament them. Um, You need to be able to lament even the minor ones because you understand the power that that is inviting into your life. You know, you were talking about demonic activity, um, invitations to evil to corrupt your heart. You know, you're not standing there with a Ouija board. But you are letting that hatred fester. You are letting the lust fester. Whatever, you know, the small things, the small ways in which you kind of open your, let down your defenses, um, however you want to word it, those need to be taken seriously. Um, Lent is a perfect time when we're asked to take those things seriously. Um, And people don't like to do that because it almost feels like you're putting yourself on trial. You know, and you say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Why do I need to... You know, I haven't done anything super wrong. Nobody even knows the things that I do wrong. Well, 
why do I need to examine my own self? And, and I don't want to tell myself what a bad person I am and you know, how much help I actually need. It doesn't really fit with our, our American way of life all the time, but it's desperately needed, and we probably all need to do more of it, um, even those of us who have you know, never plunged headfirst into the, the Murdoch pit of evil. Yeah, and let's, let's be clear about something. We're not advocating by we, meaning the two of us, but nor traditional Christianity are we suggesting that you need to go on Facebook and say, I hate myself because I'm a horrible, no, wretched no. person. What we're saying is... No, you actually don't hate yourself. You, you love yourself. That's the point, is that you know the opposite is to say, no, I'm a good person, until people find out that you fail. Yeah. And then we love to crucify people, no pun intended, yes. when, when, when they fail. The Christian perspective is to say, no, 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 I'm not. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinful person. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say it like St. Paul. St. Paul is someone who had great confidence, not in himself, mm-hmm. but in the gospel and grace of Christ. And he just said, listen, I'm the chief of sinners. I've done all these things. Mm-hmm. But he, it wasn't this case of, of self-hatred. It was Correct. self-awareness. And that's freedom. Mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to hide the flaws that we know we have, yes. to be honest about them and to be open about them. Again, not to obsess over them, you know, make it a big deal, but just say, you know, listen, I mean, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a broken, sinful person right. like everybody else, um, and I, I live by the grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so if, if, you, if you catch me in a slip-up, yeah, I mean, absolutely, yeah. completely. Why are you surprised? I'm not surprised, mm-hmm. but... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not and, I, and I don't want to do that again. Yeah. Um, but but who gave you the impression that I'm perfect? Yeah. Not me. I, I shouldn't. I mean, that, yeah. that's that's the struggle. Yeah. There's a there's a great um, line from you know saints of the desert fathers those those early Christian monastics who would go into the desert and, and pray in isolation or at least in small communities. Um, and there's a wonderful uh, story about. Um, Moses the Black, uh, the, the man who had been a robber, um, that, was, that was what he was referred to as, says he heard one day that a brother was to be brought before the council and judged, and he was invited to kind of come and, and, and participate in this judgment. So he puts a, a woven basket, and he puts a bunch of sand into it, and he, he you know, shows up um, to the council, and all the people ask, you know, why, why are you carrying your basket? You're dropping sand all behind you. And he says, um, how should I judge my brother when my sins run out behind me like the sand in this basket? Absolutely. And uh, they all go home. Um, and, you know, the, you know, people have a million questions. Well, what if, what if the person did something genuinely wrong? And, and Moses is saying, I did something genuinely yep. wrong. You know, how, how can I stand on any, you know, moral ground um, when, when my sins run out behind me? That is a... A wonderful spiritual um, place to be where you are interacting with the world. And I think when you have an awareness of your own sin, it, it frees you up to forgive others so much better. Because when you are constantly holding yourself to a perfect standard and pretending like you don't see it when you yourself fall down, and then somebody slights you, you get angry. And, you know, you're so quick to lash out. And I think when you have that proper awareness of, I only boast in the in the crucified cross, um, in the crucified Lord on the cross, and it's only because of His love that I'm standing here today. When other people, you know, slight you or or do wrong, um, it's so much easier to forgive them and to say, "There go I." I mean, committing committing similar sins. Um, yeah, the grace for- of God reaches out to both of us. And when you forgive them, 
you're freer now. Correct. Because yeah. your mind is not spent all day yeah. long obsessing about what they should have done mm-hmm. and what you should have said and how you're going Here's to I would have how you're going to restore your yeah. honor. And you know, I, I remember hearing a sermon one time where the preacher said, "When you are offended, it's because someone doesn't think as highly of you as you thought they should, mm-hmm. and that, my friend, is pride." Yeah. And I thought that was a, a powerful thing to say uh, to, to 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 consider. Um, yeah. Again, we're not saying to hate yourself. Yeah. Be free, mm-hmm. um, and and rejoice in the grace of Jesus Christ. So that also doesn't mean that we don't have consequences for our actions. Yeah. Because I don't judge you. I don't judge Alex Murdoch. Um, I mean, again, one of his law partners on the stand. This is what I love about about the legal world. Um, in terms of its comparison to, to theology, is because there is law, there is sort of right and wrong, yeah. there is a sense of judgment, even the courtroom itself has a churchy feel. Yep. There is an altar rail, mm-hmm. there is the bar, there is the altar, it is the, it is the, you know, the judge, the judge and yeah. there is a lectern and all these sorts of things. Um, but one of, the, one of the law partners was, um, the, the defense was trying to get him to say that he was angry at Alex Murdoch for all that he's done to his law firm, to his reputation, mm. all the collateral damage that happened. And he said, listen, I was angry. He says, but you've got to find a way to, to, to move on. You can't live like that. Yeah. He says, I'm indifferent to him now. I was very, very, very angry, mm-hmm. but I've moved through it. And that indifference, I thought, was 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 uh, an insightful word in that a judge of, I mean, a, a jury of his peers has found him guilty. Yeah. So legally, he's guilty. Um, whatever personal animus I have toward him is irrelevant. I, you know, obviously we condemn the taking of any human life in any form. That's wrong. But I am not damning him to eternal um, yeah. hellfire and brimstone. That's not my job. Yep. My job instead should be instead of to spend my time loathing his existence, my time should be spent praying that in the time he has left, there is um, a conversion yes. of life. Yes. Not that he's now, you know, he'll, he'll, he will have to answer in God's good time and in God's way mm-hmm. for what he has Vengeance done. Is mine, says as, the Lord. We, as we all yeah. will. But our job is to separate him, to protect himself from doing it again mm-hmm. and other people and to give him the grace and time to think on his sins, mm-hmm. have a, a transformation, and, um, and now that life might be saved, as opposed to those two lives taken, and that life is, yeah. he takes his own life spiritually. And that's the, I think that's one of the biggest challenges of the Christian life, and we've talked about this before with, with um, the devotional image. We have two image. minutes, by we the do, way. We do, we do. The devotional image, I'll close with this, um, that is you know, not in, in Scripture, but absolutely we can trust that this is, is what happens, is Stephen you know, waiting for Paul in heaven with open arms. Yep, I um, love it. Is his own murderer. Yep. If we are not willing to look at evil and say, I hope this is redeemed, I hope that person is redeemed, if you can't do that... What hope do we have for anything? Hope, yeah, yeah, none. Yeah, that we, we have to ground ourselves in the idea that Jesus, nobody is too far from Jesus, and that that each person deserves to be saved. Because if we start singling out people who we don't want to see saved, we've already separated ourselves from the love of God. And that really is um, where everything has to be grounded in. Bit of a shorter podcast today. We're recording it a day early before staff meeting. Um, I'm going out of town tomorrow. So uh, we'll we'll wrap it up a little quicker today. But a good discussion on the the existence of evil, the, the 
wonderful examples of perpetual infelicity. Um, and what, what, what is our role as Christians in the face of such evil in the world, and how do we interact with that? Our hope is always in, in Jesus Christ, the Savior of, of all of our sins. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost, be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.